Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Meaningful Learning in Software Engineering Classes. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Heidi Ellis, who is a professor of computer science and information technology at Western New England University. Her research interests include software engineering education and learning and open source software projects. Dr. Ellis is one of the founding members of the Humanitarian Free and Open Source Software Project, which focuses on involving students in open source projects that improve the human condition. Well, Heidi, welcome to our podcast conversation. It's wonderful to have you here. Maybe we can just start by, if you don't mind, providing some background information to our listeners and tell us about your work and your research interests. Sure. Uh, so thank you for having me. I'm excited to be part of this podcast series. I am a professor in the Computer Science and Information Technology Department at Western New England University. Uh, my general area is software engineering, and I have been working in the area, um, mostly in the area of pedagogical research in software engineering. What do students learn? How do they, how do they learn in a software engineering area? I'm part of a research team that is exploring student learning via participation in humanitarian open source projects. So open source projects that somehow provide some social good or some social benefit. I started this work way back in 2006. We started out by looking at whether students could learn via participation in an ongoing open source project. Could they join the project? Could they make some form of a contribution? Not necessarily a code contribution, but could they join that professional community? And we found out that they can. Uh, and also that students are very motivated by that. The encounter with the professional environment, it, uh, they find very motivating. Now we're looking at how both students and faculty, how their identity is impacted via participation in an open source computing project. Identity is related to belonging, and what we're looking for is evidence that these projects, projects that do social good, can help attract and retain people from groups that are currently underrepresented in computing. So that's our hope. Interesting. At what level do students start participating in these open source programs? The typical thought is code contributions. And so then people assume, hmm, well, maybe they need to be juniors or seniors. What we've found is that students can make contributions at all levels. Freshmen can work on things like the download and install instructions for an open source project. And if they can fix any errors in those or perhaps create download and install instructions for a new platform, open source communities love that because that's the number one barrier to participation. If you can't get the project installed, they're not going to work with it. We've also had students do things like design logos. We've had them do bug gardening so they can participate at all levels. We like to start them as freshmen and get them acclimated to the project because there is a learning curve involved. And then by the time they're seniors, then maybe they can make that code contribution. Thank you. So can you tell us about your experience teaching this class or this going through this project with your students online? Yes. So I taught online at, at the early parts of my career. And so I'm somewhat familiar with online education. 
And I, so I had a clear, when COVID hit, I had a clear understanding that teaching online could be successful. I also had an understanding that it takes effort to be successful online. And the tools had changed significantly since I last taught online. The open source projects that I've worked on in the past have a very strong online community, and that was really helpful. These projects naturally operate mostly in an asynchronous manner um, with some synchronous remote meetings, and they may get together. Typically, they'll meet each other at conferences, or sometimes the, the organization will have annual meetings, but most of them operate online. So for instance, I've had students that have helped with the accessibility tools for Mozilla um, or the accessibility tools for GNOME. Most recently, we've been working on software for the food pantry that's here at Western New England University. So there's this natural fit in going online that where the open source projects are already online, so has, asking students to go online is part of asking them to become part of the, of the community. What I did was I went from teaching face-to-face -face in a classroom to using mostly Discord, actually. And so I would have students join on Discord, and Discord does have video as well as, as voice and text. And we use that in, in manners that most people similarly use Zoom. The reason for Discord was you could set up different audio channels and, and video channels and switch back and forth very easily between them. And so that was the, the basic platform that I used. You mentioned that, you know, before COVID hit, you had already experienced teaching online and you knew how much effort it could take. What were your lessons learned from prior to COVID? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So prior to COVID, I was in an environment where what we were doing was actually broadcasting. So I would have a group of local, it was mostly synchronous, I would have a group of local students and I would have a, a camera and a group of remote students. And it became really clear to me that you have to be very precise in what you say because the interaction, the informal interactions that happen in a purely face-to-face -face environment are much more difficult to uh, to undertake when you also have that remote environment. I also learned that because it was being broadcast, to speak a bit more slowly and more clearly. <laughs> mm. That's very interesting. I, I feel like for uh, many of the instructors, rapid shift online, you know, first of all, you don't have much time to think it through and to prepare, but it's also felt like, well, you just need to shift whatever you were doing face-to-face -to, -face to online mm -hmm. without really evaluating different affordances and limitations of online platform. Yes, good point. It took a huge amount more prep. It, I had to know exactly what I wanted to convey and how I was going to convey it using both to both the people locally and the people online. I could not walk in and decide, at least I couldn't, I wasn't successful at doing that, walk in and do an off-the-cuff, oh, let's try this for an, for an example and write on the chalkboard, or we did not have that capability. So I felt like it had to be a lot more structured. I had to think through my material a lot more clearly. I had to understand what the students on the other end would be seeing and be able to capture clearly. It took a lot more thought. I, I've never spent, in having gone online last year, I think I've spent the most time ever in figuring out 
my teaching. It took mm-hmm. enormous effort. Thank you. That's really interesting. I want to follow this line of conversation for a little bit. So permit me to stretch your brain back to March of last year. And you know how we had started the spring semester. We started out okay. We started out all right. And um, then we made the switch. How was that different now that you actually had the summer, you know, when fall came and we already knew we were going to stay online, was it easier in the fall? And how did you build relationships with the students? Because in spring, you would have met them face to face. Now in the fall, you don't, you've never seen them. Yes. So I felt like spring was the enti- entirely, oh, how the heck do we do this? <laughs> Let's figure <laughs> out. And a lot of it to me was communication channels. I'm in a relatively small environment. We know all our majors. We have um, about 130 majors. So I know most of my students except for the freshmen, which I think was a huge advantage because they had all had me as well. What I saw, the biggest struggle I saw was how do you set up those communication channels? My physical environment, my office is attached to an open space that is occupied by our majors. They come in and they'll work on projects, they'll have their lunch together. So we have a highly face-to-face culture. I could walk out my door right now and see three students sitting there. And we had to figure out how do we replicate that? Students were used to being able to drop in on faculty members pretty much, you know, if the door was open, they'd stop in and chat. When COVID hit and we all went remote, we were like, okay, how do we do that? And I'm not sure we have done it successfully at the department level. Mm -hmm. At the class level, I think I've figured out how to do that. I basically set up a classroom for all of my classes on Discord. And I told my students that I would hang out there and that if they wanted to talk to me, they just needed to, to chat with me, just hop on Discord, that if I was busy, I would get to them when I could. And so I lived on Discord for a good deal. I did see that a bit. I asked all of my students when they arrived in Discord to please introduce themselves. So um, I did that this fall. And I my ha- hobby is riding dressage. And you may have seen um, that there's been a viral video from the Olympics for and Snoop Dogg did a commentary on it. And he he there's a horse that's riding to music and he's doing what they call crip walking. And so I was able to post that in my, in my discord channel to show them, look, this is what I do. And that generated interest. It was, I felt like I had to be more forthcoming about who I was and what I was. I needed in order to engage my students, I needed to almost expose myself more so that they could feel like they could approach me. I think the problem that you highlighted is how do you bring this interactive environment, the mm-hmm. sense of community? That's a million dollar questions for many. Right. I think at any level, <laughs> whether it's K through 12 or higher ed or the workplace. Mm-hmm. To follow up on that, so it maybe highlight again, so you use Discord and um, different um, instructions might use different, maybe group me chat maybe other uh, text-based communication, like you mentioned in Discord, they also do have audio, right, and video channels. Did you yes. rely on the video or audio? Was it uh, primarily text-based? So I we used audio, and we would use video during class times 
over the period of the semester, what I found is the audio was more important. Hmm. And some of this, I think, was due to the fact that I was having them work on projects. So I would, I would put them in teams and set up a Google Doc and have them work collaboratively within the Google Doc. So I would, I would create a channel, a separate channel for them to work, and then I would pop in between channels, and they would screen share their screen. And so what I found was people were looking at the screen, and so the video, the video was important because of the screen, but it wasn't important to have my face in front of them as often. And they seemed to be very effective at being able to focus on problem solve doing screen sharing with the video. And I don't know how much of that is due to the fact that most of them already knew Discord and they were used to doing that. That was sort of their mode of operation. Mm -hmm. They would play the game on the screen and then they would have the voice chat open to talk to whoever they were playing with. It would be a good point, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you could judge your students' engagement based on your experience. So you've been doing this for a while. How would you say their engagement was in an online environment versus having them in the classroom? It was a struggle for them. I think mm -hmm. it was a struggle for me, but I think it was a struggle for them as well. They, I think at the beginning felt awkward, even, even though, even if they were discord fluent, they still felt awkward in trying to learn and do something different in that environment. Um, I think what really helped was the humanitarian nature of the project they were working on. Mm -hmm. The fact I got comments at the end, I do an informal, you know, what did you like best sort of evaluation at the end of the mm -hmm. semester. And I got comments back like it felt good to be able to help, you know, my local community. It helped students like me. And so I think that was very, I think that helped mitigate the engagement. I think it would have been, I still think it would have been easier face-to-face. -face. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. And I also don't want to make necessarily any connections, but you're working with a lot of computer science majors, right, as I understand. And there might be just kind of a general look at perspective that students are already very comfortable with technology and being immersed in that, and that's part of their learning, part of their future work. So it's interesting to, to hear that you know, you do need a different type of active engagement and a face-to-face -face interaction, and it's and it's not easy for students. I did find it interesting. I think one thing I noticed that I thought was interesting was I did change how I taught, and I know we all changed how we taught because the environment is different. But one aspect that I found interesting was that a lot of the open source projects use the same tools that we were using in the classroom. They use Slack, or they use Discord, or they... They use Bitbucket, things, GitLab, things that, that my students knew but are professional tools. And when we went online, I felt that we, I was doing, as a class, we were doing um, less what I would call observing and more active participating. Hmm. And I think, yeah, so for instance, one of the things that I would do is I would take my class and to introduce them to professional communication and to the project we were working on, I would have them observe an ongoing Slack meeting or meeting somehow an interactive meeting. It could, would, could be Slack, it could be IRC, it could be Discord, different projects use different tools. And we would 
bring that I would bring that up and show it on the overhead in class and I would comment I would be comment on it make a commentary now notice this person saying this this person saying this and I would talk them through it when we went online what I found was and what I found was we would participate more that I would that I would become part of the conversation and I would use a back channel to, to communicate some some things to the students, but I did more actually in the community. Hmm. And so it felt to me like um, students were more, it made the projects more accessible to the students. It lowered that barrier between classroom and professional environment. Do you feel that majority of the students got engaged more by the nature or only some students? I think the majority of them did. I, when I run that particular class, I put them in teams and I allow the teams to self-organize. And what I find this does is it lets students pick the activities and the section of the project for which they're most comfortable. And that gives them, that gives them a little sense of ownership, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anytime I can create that sense of ownership, that increases motivation. They have something mm-hmm. that's theirs. It's also motivating for them, these, I had seniors, and to be able to have a GitLab link that showed their future employers what they were, what they had actually done, that was quite mm-hmm. motivating. That really helped engage them a lot. So did they have a, and I'm just going off my understanding of Capstone in an engineering department, did they have these industry partners or industry mentors that they needed to engage with? So this is what the open source projects worked. They okay. didn't have mentors per se. In the past, occasionally I've had access to a mentor. Mm-hmm. The problem with open source projects is anybody that's working on the project typically isn't going to have the free time to be able to, <laughs> to mentor yeah. students. In the communities as a whole, I will say, the humanitarian communities, I think, due to just due to their nature, they were wonderfully welcoming of students and they were so supportive. And students getting told that they produced something that was helpful to the community was better than students getting an A in the class. They were so psyched with that type of interaction. I was also wondering, you mentioned that students did work in teams, correct? Yes, correct. And from your observation, working in teams in an online environment without the face-to-face interaction in comparison to previous classes where they had the face-to-face part, what have you noticed? I noticed they were, and it could be, right, I only have one semester's worth of data on this, but they self-organized better. I Hmm. found that they were more careful about scheduling and they were more careful about attending meetings. They were more clear about the roles that student played in the teams. Mm. And I think that's because, I'm guessing, but my gut says it's because they had to communicate more and better because they wouldn't be seeing those people. They, you know, they figured, well, if I miss so-and-so in class today, I'll see him this afternoon in this other class. They didn't have that informal type of interaction, and I think it made them be more formal to ensure that they were um, communicating completely with their team. Very interesting, because it feels that communication is such an important aspect of teamwork. 
and also just of, you know, the same instructional goals and what you've been mentioning from your standpoint, you had to really emphasize clear communication with students and Mm -hmm. finding alternative ways like Discord to do that. And it seems that for students, also the positive affordance is that the need, (laughs) so basically they were driven by the need to be heard, to participate, and uh, to really focus on their communication. Very interesting. Yes. Students yeah. students vocalize this themselves as well. When I ran this course, I ran them in sprints, in three sprints. We have a 15-week term. And so approximately, you know, we had a week of startup. So we had approximately four to five-week sprints. At the end of each sprint, students had to write a reflection. And the reflection was, was uh, organized. And one of the questions was, you know, what thing did your team do well? What thing should your team improve? And how would you improve it? So very focused on team dynamics. And and the communication came out in all three. And it was mm-hmm. fascinating to watch them, to watch how they refined, how they were communicating, and, how, and also decision-making to some degree. Mm. So permit me, I want to go back a little bit to what you said earlier about using these professional modes of communication, breaking down the barrier between school and work, or at least what work will look like. Could you say more about that? And if you, would this be something you would recommend to other capstone instructors? My general opinion is the closer we can get to getting students exposed to a real work environment, a real world environment, anything we can do in that direction is positive. I know that students, we can give them all the theoretical understanding that we can in their years in college, and then they hit the real world and they're handed a project that has such complexity that it's orders of magnitude beyond anything that they've seen in a classroom. And I think that is key, to be able to expose them to that type of complexity. And also the ambiguity that's involved in those types of projects. There's not always one right answer. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely um, would encourage anybody who's running a capstone to do that as as much as possible. The open source environment offers a unique opportunity to do that because it's open and because you can do things like look at a at a particular design and then trace the conversation back for the design decision how why did they decide they were going to to go, pick that particular design and most frequently that will be all accessible it takes a little bit of effort to find it you got to go searching for it but either you the instructor can search and lay it out for your students or have the students understand the complexity by doing that search themselves right how complex is this thing and it's a balance because that type of complexity can overwhelm students. It can scare students a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. half a million lines of code. Oh, my God, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> do you know? But we, what I tell my students is we're going to be productively lost, meaning that we're, we're going to know major milestones. We're going to know major signposts. We are not going to get to understand a half a million lines of code. It's beyond anyone to completely mm-hmm. understand a project of that size. But we will be able to identify where a particular requirement is located, how to find it. And from that requirement, we should be able to then find the code that fulfills it. So we can, so we're not 
it's not just this big overwhelming cloud that we're surrounded with, but we will find signposts to, to find our way. So do you think in some way, well, in, in your case, you work with the students in the open source environment prior to the last year. But I wonder if for many students, if the class was designed to kind of support connections to the real world practice, that was a good experience to to try it out, to try the tools. Like I said before, the students were more of the observers of something and, and then all of a sudden they became active participants in the work process. I definitely think so, yes. In some ways, as an instructor, in some ways, COVID made it more acceptable to take on risk. Hmm. Do you know that, okay, it's as if our world was picked up and and shaken around, do you know? And Mm -hmm. we were all struggling to try to figure out how to do this. And so if I'm going to struggle to figure out how to do this, uh, I'm going to I'm going to think broadly. I'm going to think widely and let's try something new. Hence the discord. (laughs) Are you continuing to use it for the semester? I am. I love it. The students are just they just hop on and they're there. And and it's see, I, I think it's a generational thing. I think it's because many of them, not all of them, but many of them game and they're already on the plot. They know it. And so they don't. They, it somehow makes me more approachable that I'm on their platform. Mm. Oh. So do you feel some of the instructors who don't engage in the text-based communication like Slack or Discord, they're losing out on connecting and building some level of trust with their students? I think we're all going to get pushed into into using some form of, of remote communication, online communication. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to have a choice because we're not going to be able to replicate the type of interaction we have in the classroom, even with masks. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I hadn't realized how closely I was tracking my students face to face until I realized that I would present a topic when I was face to face without masks mm-hmm. and I could scan that classroom, see the micro expression of the student that wasn't understanding quite the topic I had introduced add a few sentences of clarification and move on based on the fact that they would nod their head or say, oh, yeah, I got it. I could just see that expression. And I don't I cannot see those expressions on Zoom and I cannot mm-hmm. see them with masks. And so I'm finding I'm having to use other forms to connect with students because I'm missing the the very subtleties of, of classroom interactions. So I guess for the instructor who is kind of grappling with these things as you have and having figured out ways to connect with your students, what kind of advice would you give such a person? I think that what I might do is enlist the age of eight of a student, find Hmm. a couple of trusted students and ask those questions. How best can I communicate with you and with Mm -hmm. your peers? And start a dialogue, start a conversation, come up, brainstorm with the students and come up with ideas. Students sometimes, I love students, they come up with really different ideas and some of them aren't feasible, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that's why they're students and because they, because they can come up with these ideas. So I think I would do that as a first step and see what the, what do the students need? How, what is the best way to, to connect with you, to communicate with you? 
I also want to come back quickly to the point of balance of asynchronous and synchronous mm -hmm. teaching, because I think this is a problem if somebody has to teach an online class. It is a question, you know, and, and I don't don't necessarily think one is better than the other. But in your opinion and your experience, what should the ratio be? And is it possible to substitute everything by synchronous like some of the instructors prefer and let students do it on their own time? What is the healthy dose <laughs> of each of those? I think that depends <laughs> because, <laughs> because different students have different needs. When I first did online, I was doing professional master's level computer science education. I could tell that group of students, they'd worked, they were in a work environment. I could go completely asynchronous. I didn't have to talk to them face to face the entire semester. I could I could post things and know that they were done. They were because they they were accustomed to being handed jobs they had to complete within a certain time frame. Mm -hmm. Undergraduates are different. The things that I would do with my freshmen are really different than the things I would do with my seniors. In my particular environment, my freshmen need a fair bit of uh, support in direct interaction, and that means synchronous. That means that I'm going to need, if it's not face-to-face, -face, I'm going to need to have a discussion with them somehow online um, or vocal, maybe video on Zoom or Discord, mm -hmm. one of those. And I think that's helpful. I have freshmen this year as well. I think that's helpful for them to feel like they're a part of the institution and a part of the class. They need that connection. Mm -hmm. My seniors, I'm much happier reducing the amount of actual synchronous interaction that we need. And in some groups, I'd be happy to let them be mostly asynchronous and meet with them perhaps for a half an hour a week to do like a progress check. And the rest mm -hmm. of it I could handle by email or, you know, Discord conversation and so forth. I, I think it's also part of the nature of the courses that I'm teaching. Right? I'm doing mm -hmm. a progress, a project-based course. So there, there's a, a good deal of independent learning happening there. I don't know if I had, you know... A database course, whether I might think it would be more helpful to have more synchronous for an mm. upper level class. So do you think the content of the course then kind of helps the instructor to make certain decisions leaning either way? Uh, yeah, I trace that back to what I said earlier about catching that micro expression of students didn't get it. I, mm -hmm. There's some classes where the material is really hierarchical. Right. I'm not sure about an So I would be curious about like an introduction to programming course. Mm -hmm. I think some students could do that with some support, you know, guided exercises pretty much asynchronously. But there'll be the students if they don't get the assignment statement, they're not going to survive for the rest of the course. They're just. Yeah. And so with that type of of knowledge, you you need the ability to quickly identify any misconceptions or missing pieces and fix it. And I think that would be easier in a synchronous environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, another question is about assessment. If you have any good tips for instructors who will be listening to this recording for the online assessment. So assessment in an online environment opens, raises the huge question of what do you do about cheating? Mm -hmm. And that's and that's problematic. And there's the way that I approach that is to be as application oriented. Clearly, with Google right there available, asking <laughs> questions about you know <laughs> about very things that are concrete is not going to work. 
mm-hmm. which means that now when I'm doing an if-then-else, say I want to test on if-then-else, I might ask the question rather than provide students with an example of an if-then-else and, and say, okay, so if I give values A, what do I get for an output? Because they could copy it and execute it. I might ask, hmm, I'm in charge of creating um, an if-then-else statement for a tax system, and here's the tax brackets and the, and the amount. Would you suggest using an if-then-else or a case statement, and if so, why? And so... And I recognize that, that that's asking a different question than I would ask in a classroom. That asks them to, to really understand whether the difference between an if-then-else and a case, as opposed to seeing the code and understanding how the code works, or even perhaps writing the code. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I don't think you're ever going to get complete equivalency with an online and a face-to-face, but my approach to there has been to try to ask, call them, we've given you this concept, now apply it to this situation. And also, I think it's helpful to, to provide more frequent assessment. Many people have suggested this. Rather than just doing a midterm and a final, do, you know, every other week quizzes and have them total mm-hmm. the same that it would for the midterm or the, or the final. I, I agree with that. I think that's really helpful. To expand on that assessment of the teamwork, I don't know if you do that, whether you feel like you were able to gain more transparency by looking at the team's conversations as well as, you know, having their Google Doc there, or you had some limitations. And I don't know how team members between themselves manage um, who contributed what to the project. So on my team documents, what I do is I have a team contribution table and I have Mm -hmm. student self-report. And typically, so if it's a report, I'll take each section of the report and I will have who wrote it and then, and it could be more than one, and then I have them break it down on percentages and then who edited it. And so it helps me track. I don't usually grade based on that per se, but it allows me to see who's putting the effort in and who is not. And then what I do is I will, at the end of the semester, I have a student evaluation form for the team. It's a team evaluation and it's private. So every team member evaluates every other team member on a score mm-hmm. of one to five for, a, I think I've got eight different criteria, you know, participation in meetings, contribution to, to the project. There's several different factors there. And then I use that when I do the final grades. And by that point, usually because I'm following what the teams are doing, it's pretty clear if somebody's not pulling their weight. The other thing that I do, and it feels a little bit like bean counting, <laughs> but, but it does encourage students to, to step in and contribute, is I actually I count the number of comments that students make on issues online in their environment. Mm-hmm. I can see, because it's an open an open source project, I can see if they've opened an, a new bug or a new issue, I can see that. It's right there. If they've commented on somebody else's, I can see it. It's right there. And so that gives a really clear picture as to what sort of helps. And I can and I make it clear that saying good job is not really a comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that if they make an observation along the lines of it looks like you've chosen this approach to solve this, have you considered that other approach? That's a much more insightful comment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do grade them, and, and you can come up with a rubric that's pretty simple. You know, one is a good job, and three is a really insightful comment, and then two in between. 
um, if you want to get more specific. It also allows students to see what other students are doing so they can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And so one student will see another student make a comment and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And I think that's huge. As an instructor, do you think uh, one should intervene if they see that some of the students are not really pulling the weight in, at least what's apparent on the chat? The way that I handle this is to pull the team in and ask the team, what are the team dynamics? How are things happening? And explain to them that it looks to me like I'm not seeing, like I'm seeing, um, I forget how I put it, unequal effort on the parts of team members. Can someone explain that to me? Mm-hmm. And and then, and if they if they agree, then we have a discussion. How do you fix that? So I don't, I try to, use it as a team learning exercise so mm-hmm. that the team members learn because they're going to have these people in the real world, <laughs> right? And you, and they and the proper answer is probably not go complain to the boss, right? They're going to have to at least try to solve it within their team. So we work out, how do you solve that? What is, what is the issue going on? How do we, and it, and it has happened. I've had it happen. We've had mm-hmm. those discussions. So you're back in the classroom now, correct? I'm face to face. I am partially face to face, partially online. So I'm sort of a hybrid situation. uh, What are your thoughts about that for moving forward? I am watching the numbers, the COVID numbers very carefully. And I am planning on my current approach is I've got the class twice a week. Once we'll do face to face and once we will we'll do hybrid. And seeing how that progresses, if this, I have a, more students than I have had in the past. And so I'm, it's hard, I'm, I'm figuring out the issues of scaling. Mm-hmm. You know, last time I had, I had 12, I'm now up to 19. And that, that actually makes a fair bit of difference. So I'm trying to figure out how to scale for if I go entirely online. But mm-hmm. I'm also comfortable if, if we decide I need to go entirely online. I'm, I'm very comfortable doing that as well. Mm-hmm. And if somebody was thinking about teaching online, what are the couple of the things that an instructor should really, really focus? Um, and, and obviously difficult to say for different disciplines, but in your experience, you know, one or two or three things that are really important for online teaching and learning. Communication and planning. Mm-hmm. So having as many different, so figuring out what, communication channels are comfortable for students, supporting those, and making those clear to students, right? Because you need the connection to students. Students need to feel connected. Connection happens through communication. So figuring that out and making those clear. And and if you can have multiple, I always tell my students, find me on Discord. I do email as well. You know, I'd be happy to do whatever mm-hmm. you feel comfortable doing. I'm also on Slack, but I don't tell them that. I don't want to overload them. (laughs) Um, So I said communication. And what was the second thing? Oh, planning. Mm -hmm. I found that it was that I wanted much more structure when I approached the class. And I think that helped the students. I spent time thinking through. I sat in front of my computer with Discord open and thought about how is this going to work? What am I going to see? How many... How many people are going to fit on my screen? How many students, how many groups am I going to, to put them in? How am I going to move from group to group? Is it feasible to have them complete this particular exercise? 
I, I felt it really felt very much like um, almost seat of the pants, but I felt like I had to go through that process of, of walking my way through classes so that I felt comfortable that I wasn't going to have a major, any sort of a major mistake or blip happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The third piece of advice is blips are going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so shrugging and, and being upfront with your students saying, yep, okay, that didn't work. Let's retrench and try something different. I, I just had to get really comfortable saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, how do you plan your time when you have to teach students synchronously? Are there any tips for what's really when you have them in some form of face-to-face? <laughs> what do you really need to get out of this uh, interaction? When I have them face-to-face? Yeah. When, yeah, when I have them face-to-face, I, build, I do work on building relationships and teamwork. Mm-hmm. Because that will carry into the to the asynchronous and, and to the online work, right? If they know, if they have a better idea of who they're communicating with, they'll be much more free, much more comfortable communicating with that person when they do it asynchronously and online. So, what are what are some of the things you do for building relationships? I'm just curious. I have students do. Um, in the freshman class, I do a bunch of, of activities that are related to, um, to an introduction activity. I, I do a team building activity where I have them put them in teams and give them a, a set of three by five note cards and have them build the tallest tower that they can. And, and then I, and then I do reflections afterward where I ask them questions about who did what when you did this team. For my software engineering class today, I did what I, I have an activity called triangles and teams, and it's a pogle activity. Um, and it, it gives them a, um, a graphic that's a bunch of interlocking triangles. And there's big triangles and little triangles within the big triangles, not nested, but just lines going every way. And so I put them in teams and I say, okay, how many triangles are there? And give them three minutes to do that, and you can't count them in three minutes, and that frustrates them. <laughs> and then I then I say step back, and I say, so, how? What were the approaches that we used? And then they talk through the you know the approaches, and by answering those types of questions, they learn about their classmates. And so then I will say, okay, so what roles did people play? Was somebody the organizer? And so they'll so I run them through an activity that isn't technically hard but gives them a little bit of challenge and a little bit of think of, to think about and then have them reflect on the experience of how did you solve that problem and what were the different ways and what were the different perspectives. I mean, you could talk for hours about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, another question I have actually from some of the previous talks about text-based communication that students are doing when they're working in teams in a project. Do you feel, you mentioned that students commented on the fact that they have to be more intentional about how they communicate but obviously working teams could be complicated and challenging to, to some and there are conflicts that come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think when students are more intentional in their interaction, are they nice as well? Um, and that helps <laughs> with conflict resolution or not necessarily? I think that you can, I think that I set the tone for that. I have spent the, the, I just got done with my second class. I, I've talked almost purely about professionalism mm. and, and the fact that 
you're embarking on your professional career and communication is key. It needs to be exact. It needs to be precise. It needs to be polite. It needs to be. And so I have conversations with them. So I don't know whether it, I know that they're pretty good about the, about being intentional and being polite in their communication. I don't know how much of that is they realize they have to be. I also have discord guidelines where I lay out that they, I have a, like a code of conduct in there mm -hmm. because one of the downsides of students coming from gaming is that gaming can create a you know, sort of a trash talk mentality. And I don't want that in the classroom in any way. And so I'm very clear up front, this is a professional venue. You need to speak professionally. And I think our last question to you would be, as we are moving forward into whatever comes next, um, some of us are slowly transitioning back to face-to-face -face classes. What are some things that we should be sure we don't leave behind? Like things that worked over the last year and a half that we should really hold on to. I like the fact that the past year really emphasized communication. It really brought that to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, I think that's a, a positive and I will definitely carry that forward, make it more obvious to my students the importance of, communica importance of communication and the mechanisms and so forth. Um, the other thing is, I will continue to, to make myself more available to students on Discord. Up to this point, in my experience, they do not take advantage of it. They're not, I'm not getting bombarded, I'm not getting overwhelmed. My, I had to men mentally tell myself, if someone pings me on Discord and I'm in the middle of something, I don't have to answer, right? So I had to draw a few personal boundaries to do that. But I feel like I'm approachable and I like the fact, especially in like the introductory courses, in, in like an intro to programming class, if I can solve the problem that students working on immediately, if it's eight o'clock at night and I'm hanging out and they've got a quick question and I can solve it and they can go on and learn, I think that's a huge plus. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a huge amount of time on my part. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I'm in a rel I have relatively small classes. If I had 150 students, my advice might be a little <laughs> different. <laughs> but I might have TAs on Discord. That I mm -hmm. definitely would suggest. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. Yes, it was. Ah, thanks. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.